The General Assembly recognises Abel, Bursar of Conclave, Zenith Ascendant, as Admiral of the Great Fleet sailing forth to cast down the Eyrie of the Slave Lords. A journey of this length, so far into the unknown, will be a battle of logistics as much as it will be a battle of swords. The Bursar is known across Anvil for his prosperity and administrative acumen. Whether he is chosen as Admiral or not, Abel pledges 60 mana from his personal prosperity towards the success of this venture. Two mana per fleet captain for pledges to join the raid and enchant their fleet to improve its effectiveness. If you intend to sail to the Airy, seek out the tent of Zenith Ascendant to claim your share. Bartimaeus of the General Assembly at the Autumn Equinox 384. And I sincerely apologise if that is not at all what that player sounds like. I imagine it is not. However, I can just... I can just feel the General Assembly vibes there with that accent. So, um, if I've offended people, sorry, but I really enjoyed that. Anyway, hello! My name is Ban Chattersong, former captain of the Bloody Hands Mercenary Company, and today we are talking through another Wind of War. Specifically, Burning. Now, this is all about the absolute slam-down that the Empire inflicted upon the slavers, and TLDR, or Too Long Didn't Read, if you're not familiar with the lingo, um, there has been a great victory, some might say shattering, of the international slave trade. Quite the achievement. I've got some comments on that, but we'll cover them at the end. But first, dear fellows, let us dive into burning and start ourselves off at Volkovar. I, oh, I don't think I can keep that going. Anyway, right. The ships gather in Volkovar, in the Western Commonwealth. Snow covers the mithril spires of the university. The docks throng with imperial vessels. Dedicated Commonwealth soldiers, given license to take part in the attack against Rachengrab, seek passage on those vessels not already laden down with imperial heroes. A few have chartered vessels of their own, eager to join their Imperial allies in the raid. Likewise, a handful of passionate Sumer warbands have made the long journey east to the Sea of Steel. Some have travelled directly from the assault on Chalsoncio, hopping from one Imperial ship to another in the pursuit of a virtuous cause. There are even a few black-sailed ships from Axos here, although the Axu seemed more interested and the wealth to be seized from Rachen's grab than in any moral imperative to free slaves. Still, they are part of the Liberty Pact, and nobody questions their right to take part. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, slavery, um, perhaps, I, I don't want to say obviously because that just sounds rude, but um, slavery exists in the Empire world. However, there are a group of nations, of which the Empire is one, that don't uh, support it, and other nations that do, like the Druze, for example. Those who do not have formed the Liberty Pact, and whilst we might not be erstwhile allies with everyone in the Liberty Pact, when it comes to slavery... Slavery? <coughs> slavery? There is common cause and goodwill to work upon with each other, 
and essentially what's happening here with this wind of war is a grand armada is sailing is sailing out to go and destroy a slaving HQ or a capital or some kind of centre of the slave trade internationally. And thus we've invited everyone along for a jolly good show and a bit of a spanking of these slave lords. The majority of the forces gathering in the Commonwealth are imperial in nature. All docking fees are waived and the Empire's champions receive a warm welcome. Strategy is discussed, the university provides maps of the Northern Sea of Steel, and it is perhaps sobering to see just how big the Eastern Ocean is. Even the Commonwealth has only sketchy details about its northern expanse, and without the information seized from the Temple of God of Chains, uh, in a previous slaving raid, I believe one or two summits ago, there would be little hope of narrowing down the search for the slave lords down in the Tears of the Moon. The Tears of the Moon, a fanciful name for an archipelago, steeped in horror. They lie almost directly north of Volkovar, across a vast wasteland of cold water. The Commonwealth has no contact with the people there and those who live amongst them. In the past, they have fiercely protected their privacy, and it is easy to see why now. Rahinsgrab, the site of the Slave Lord's Eyrie, is the largest of the islands. Commonwealth captains speak of extensive defences and treacherous shallow waters that would give even a skilled explorer pause. But again, the chart seed from Chaloncio detail a route through that will allow the raid to strike at Rachensgrab without risking the dangers of the narrow channels. Time is of the essence. The longer the Liberty Pact delays its assault, the more time the slave lords will have to prepare for what is coming. Less than a month after the autumn equinox, amid flurries of snow, the signal is given. The armada sails out of Volkovar's fortified harbour, a great hunting pack of sleek ships heading north. The passage to the Tears of the Moon requires a careful weighing of risk. Stray too far from the sight of land, and one risks getting lost in the trackless ocean. Venture too close, and one risks engagement with a minor nation. Or worse, providing advance warning to the slave lords. The closer the armada gets, the more regularly they encounter ships with crimson sails heading to or from Rachensgrab. The crews of these vessels are given one chance to surrender, and if they refuse, they are shown no mercy. The first slaves are freed before the raid even sights the tears of the moon. Some insist on joining the raid, whilst others are given custody of the ships on which they were being transported, and the freedom to return to their homes. I think, uh, as a side note here, you better hope that at least one of those slaves on those ships is a uh, some kind of sailor and understands how to get home. Or perhaps the Empire has lent some uh, able captains to, uh, to see them home. But anyway, I digress. It takes the better part of three weeks to reach the archipelago. Two dozen islands stretched out in a frigid sea. 
Each ship captain has a chart showing the winding route between the aisles. Lanterns and the Helioptikon cipher allow the Liberty-packed ships to communicate quickly with one another and to coordinate their attack. With the rising sun, the armada arrows towards Rahinsgrab. The island spills out around a volcanic mountain, from which a thin plume of smoke rises towards the grey sky. The waters here are warmer than those in the rest of the archipelago, and a sprawling city stretches along the coastline in the shadow of a mountain. A great stone fortress gazes down from the volcanic peak, shaped like the head of a giant lizard. As the Imperial ships approach, beacons are lit in the eyes of the citadel, and the alarm is raised. The armada overwhelms the docks under a hail of fire. Literal fire, as squat stone towers rise from the seawall, topped with metal catapults that launch globs of burning pitch and oil into the attacking ships. While most of the missiles are mundane, there are a few that burn with brilliant sapphire flames, which spread supernaturally fast and resist all efforts to quench them. Water seems to simply make them burn more fiercely. They can only be dealt with by smothering them, and several ships sustain catastrophic damage before this solution is discovered. Freeborn magicians will later speak of the autumn magic that infuses these fireballs and speculate as to which one of the cities their incendiary power might draw upon. Soldiers spill from the ships onto the docks and the defenders of Rachensgrab pour out to meet them. Their discipline stands in stark contrast to that of the other defenders, the crews of individual vessels who fight to try and protect their ships. It is clear that in addition to the crimson-sailed ships of the slave laws themselves, there are a number of large Yarmish ships here, as well as assorted Asivian traders, several Grendel cogs, and even a pair of Sarcophan merchant vessels, all mixed in with ships belonging to nations that the Empire has no knowledge of. If the marines of these ships had thought together, or cooperated with the slave lord troops, they might have presented a threat to the Empire's heroes. In the event, it is clear that as each ship is there, each ship is there for itself, and most are quickly overwhelmed or flee. Many sink, a few are captured, and their crews surrender or choose to take their chances in the waters of the bay. Chaos floods into the city. There seems to be little rhyme or reason to its layout, the narrow alleys and broad avenues resembling nothing so much as a nest of serpents spilling down from the slopes of the mountain. With the liberty-packed ships focusing on controlling the docks and the waterfront, the warbands that have travelled with them must push into the city, towards the temple of Faram Vex, the Sacrifice Tower, and their ultimate goal, the Eyrie of the Slave Lords themselves. To the Temple of Chains, this temple lies not far from the docks, unsurprising as it serves not only as a place of blasphemous worship, but also as one of the biggest auction blocks in the city. Its architecture is entirely unfamiliar, a pyramid similar to the ziggurats of the Sumer, but with straight sides rather than steps. 
brilliant under the rising sun. The white marble facings glow like the full moon, and the twisting green metallic lines that coil across its surface gleam like polished emeralds. Massive arched entryways sealed with great doors of weirwood and mithril allow access to the interior of the structure, flanked by bronze statues of Faram Vex, the Lord of Chains. This is the domain of Mordramor, the high priest of Faram Vex. It is fortified, but the defences are no match for imperial heroes. Mordramor himself is not in residence, he has fled to the area above the city at the first sign of liberty-packed armadas. But the defenders fight like fanatics. Wrapped in heavy armour of golden scale and armed with nets and pole arms and vicious man-catchers, their accoutrements are of fine quality and many of them are the product of the artisan's arts. Several of the defenders show signs of being enchanted. Their armour absorbs blows that might fell even a mighty warrior and they wield their pole arms with supernatural ability. They are supported by further unnatural allies. Creatures from the autumn realm half again the height of the tallest warrior, with metallic skin shaded silver or gold. They wield horrible glass chains that coil around their opponents, holding them in place or even paralyzing them. These seem to be the agents of Fire and Vex, the Lord of Chains and the human defenders treat them with religious awe. Nonetheless, the Imperial champions press the assault, forcing the Temple Guards back until they finally reach the inner sanctum of the Temple, a vaulted open space with a perpetually burning flame. Four great golden statues of Faram Vex hold the eternal flame aloft by nine thick green steel chains. The defenders make their final stand here, fighting to the last in the name of their false god. As the liberty-packed forces break down the doors of the sanctum, Faram Vex himself joins the battle. Bound in armour of chains, the god wields potent autumn magics as befits a lord of the city of gold and lead. At first, he tries to negotiate but once it is clear nobody is listening, he unleashes his magic, serpentine chains of force that bind a dozen attackers at a time. Yet even though he masquerades here as a god, he is still only a herald, and there is a limit to what his magic can achieve. Finally, an agile freeborn ducks beneath the flailing chains and is able to get close enough to herald to strike, impaling it with a devastating blow from their bouge. With Faram Vex dispatched, the defence of the temple collapses. The statues are cast down, thousands of slaves are freed, and the very flame that burned in the heart of the temple let loose to burn Mordramo's cathedral to the ground. The wood is devoured, and so is the stone, with equal hunger. At the same time that some of the liberty-packed forces tear down the temple of Far and Vex, another group of heroes assailed the sacrificial tower of Al-Jaxku. The tower itself is a peculiar one, and to imperial eyes is seen as a temple, a spire made up of a dozen squat cones stacked upon one another, 
with thick iron chains anchoring it and helping to keep it vertical. It is surrounded by several smaller buildings, again with the odd shape of truncated cones. Ajaxtu of the many masks is the public face of the slave lords, a diplomat, negotiator and master of disguise. Their apprentices wear featureless metal masks that conceal their identity and favour metal rods that allow them to wrap their phones in invisible chains. Their mage armour is studded with tempest jade. Those whom they cannot immobilise, they hurl away with blasts of irresistible force. Unlike the fanatics at the Temple of Fire and Vex, the defenders of the sacrificial tower prefer to employ hit-and-run tactics, retreating into the tower and its surrounding buildings. Here, the Imperial champions learn the truth of the rumour that the tower is full of traps. The entire structure and parts of the surrounding campus are riddled with tripwires and pressure plates, dart traps, concealed crossbows, pendulum blades and scythes, bellows that spray acid or venom, trapdoors, walls of spikes and all the mechanisms of torment and entrapment that one can imagine. I imagine that my ex-mother-in-law is also somewhere within this temple. However, they are not enough. The champions of the Liberty Pact will not be turned back by such toys, however vicious they might be. One by one, the defenders of the tower are defeated, many of them falling to their own traps rather than face capture. Ajaxtu is cornered, caught in the midst of a desperate negotiation with a figure wearing three masks who laughs with glee when the first champions appear at the top of the tower and abandons the many mask to their fate. Cursing the treachery of their patron, Ajaxtu and their last few apprentices desperately fight, but in the end, they are left with no choice but to surrender or to fall from the top of the sacrificial tower. Pausing only to spit a curse at his conquerors, Ajaxtu takes the latter course, plunging down onto the spikes at the base of the tower. Their body is never recovered, but they are surely dead. Surely. The tower is destroyed, but not before its vaults and treasuries are broken open and the wealth seized by the victorious Liberty. Pact. While the warbands and champions have taken the temple and the tower and freed thousands of slaves, the captains and mariners of the Armada have not been idle. A blockade is thrown up around the island, aiming to sink any ship that tries to flee the city. A handful manage to slip away, but the majority are boarded or sunk. Those few ships that make it to open water represent a fraction of the might the slave lords once boasted. They will most likely fall prey to the various nations they are used to raiding. A few might make it to the relative safety of Cavour or Vazak, but even there they are unlikely to receive much of a welcome. The magician princes are nothing if not practical. Without the strength of the slave lords behind them, the crimson sailed ships are little more than pirates. The Armada sinks more ships than it seizes, but easily a score of vessels are captured rather than consigned to the cold embrace of the sea. 
Most of these ships are handed over to the liberated slaves and allowed to crew them, but the finest are taken as trophies. Once they have disgorged their cargo of freed slaves, their disposition will be for the able, the admiral of the Grand Fleet. With temple and tower in ruins, with a ring of weirwood and steel cast around the island, the final assault on the seat of the slave lords begins. A squat fortification on the high ground overlooking the city, on the slopes of the volcano, it is an impressive structure. Easily as intimidating as any imperial fortification, storming it is no easy matter. Yet the Liberty Pact forces still have the advantage of surprise. Help comes from an unexpected source, from some of the liberated slaves. They know of hidden ways into the fortification. Apparently, past slave lords did not trust to the white granite walls, or distrusted their fellows enough that they made preparations for their own escape. These tunnels can be used to breach the defences and attack the defenders from unexpected locations. While the main force of soldiers assaults the gates of the fortification, as a distraction as much as anything else, elite teams sneak under the walls through these narrow passages led by courageous former slaves. There are traps to deal with, but compared to the horrors of the sacrificial tower, they are relatively easily overcome. Once there are agents inside the Eyrie, the gates are soon torn open. The slave lords and their hand-picked bodyguards fight desperately, savagely, trapped within their own sanctum. Some attempt to make deals of their own, betraying their supposed comrades for the chance to survive. Others fight with pride and courage, refusing to bow their heads and using every advantage they can wring from their superior knowledge of the Eyrie. Beneath it, lie vaults full of ill-gotten gains of a century of trading in human and orc misery. The guardians of those treasure vaults are two monstrous statues of bronze and steel. And when it is clear that the defenders of the Eyrie are overwhelmed, the slave lords unleash them on their attackers. Four armed titans, full of liquid fire, tear through the floor of the council chambers, ripping soldiers limb from limb or crushing them with great metal fists. In the end, though, even these monstrous foes are defeated. The last half-dozen slave lords fall in the ruins of their council chamber. Their leader, Fiedler, is found buried beneath a pile of dead soldiers, having fought to the last breath. The survivors are promptly executed and the threat of the slave lords is ended for good. The vaults, now undefended, are looted. In the absence of their monstrous guardians, there is little to stop the Liberty Pact taking whatever they can carry. With the city in flames, the Armada turns back south, and some of the swifter vessels head straight for home. Others will stop at Volkovar to resupply, or to help those former slaves with no homes to go and begin lives anew. With the destruction of the slave lords, the international trade in slaves had started to collapse, leaving a vacuum in its wake. With the lesson of Chaloncio and Rahim's grab fresh in people's minds, it will be a generation or more before anyone even considers setting up 
a similar operation. Assuming, of course, that anyone ever does. Yarm and Asivia are unlikely to change their ways. They are too reliant on the corrupt structures that show up those in power. But they will be unable to buy slaves to replace those they have lost, unable to sell those they wish to dispose of. Both powers will be forced to consider some changes or else make deep sacrifices to continue as they are. There is some talk of fundamental change, of the turning of an age. The heavens turn, the wanderer shifts into alignment with the chain and the great worm. Those who sail away from Rachensgrab are left in no doubt that they have achieved something and taken part in something monumental. So there you have it, folks. At, a, uh, at an analysis level, the unequivocal success of the assault on the Erie of the slave lords has shattered the international slave trade. This is what I was talking about earlier, uh, the word shattering. It is a great victory for the Liberty Pact. An immense amount of wealth has been seized as part of the raid. And, excuse me, <coughs> every character who participated in the raid is going to receive four crowns. That's a lot of pints. Uh, this is from the golden status of Varum Vex. You'll also get a pouch of warm ashes, which is essentially autumn viz, or autumn specialized manner. So if you're going to cast an autumn ritual, you get a buff to it. I think it's like a two for one versus just using regular crystal mana, which is pretty cool. And if you're not a mage, sell it. In addition, there are a number of rewards that will be distributed randomly, which is the most fun word in any kind of Wind of War, randomly among all those who took part in the raid. These include 30 magic weapons seized from the defenders of the Temple of Far and Vex, a dozen magic items used to empower autumn magic, and get this, oh, excuse me, get this, a hundred wanes of materials, whether it's mithril, white granite, or weirwood, have been seized from the slave lord's vaults. Gosh, that, that sentence was an absolute train wreck, Chris. Well done. Anyway, furthermore, the raid admiral has gained the possession of eight rank three fleets and two rank five fleets that they can distribute in any way they see fit to those who would benefit from a bigger ship and a pair of ritual texts dealing autumn, apologies, detailing autumn rituals seized from a Jatsu and the many masks. Finally, every character who took part in the assault on the Eyrie of the Slave Lords will find details of a special spiritual aura in their pack. This represents a spontaneous personal aura that has appeared at some point when they were engaged in the fight on Arachensgrab. Provided they were sincere about their desire to defeat the Slave Lords and free the slaves, your character was, well, if your character was motivated solely by greed, you can discard the spontaneous aura. Otherwise, it will prove both durable, which means persisting until it is removed, and strong. A slip detailing the role-playing effects will be in each player's pack and should be kept as long as the aura remains. Only characters whose fleet or military unit was committed to the raid will receive this aura, so please do not email in asking for it if you did not take part in this downtime action. So there we go. Um, 
a lot of loot. Everyone's getting some cash. You're getting an aura. And I think there were like 50... Were there 50 independent captains that took part or something like that? Maybe more. I'm not sure about the numbers. But the fact there's 100 wanes of mithril, white granite, or weirwood going in there. Each one of those is worth four to five thrones, depending on who's asking and when. But if we're looking at an average of two per person, then you've made just shy of 11 thrones. Well, yeah, 10 and a half thrones. Let's assume it's fives. Um, and the four crowns. And then you also might pick up some magic weapons, which I believe are going to be those glaives and spears that was mentioned in the fluff text. And then magic items for the Autumn Realm. You might get some wands and stuff. And whoever the Admiral is, um, I believe that was mentioned further up. It's going to be Abel, Bursa of Conclave of the Zenith Ascendant Household, I guess. Spire ah, of the Zenith Ascendant Spire in Uruzen is now an extremely wealthy player because at their, at their discretion they have eight rank three fleets so everyone's your personal resource let's let's use fleet as an example you get one when you make a character to upgrade it's level two you need two uh, i think it's weirwood to upgrade it's level three you need three weirwood that's a total of five so these fleets have had a free five wanes so that's loosely 25 thrones spent on them. And now Abel gets to give them away. Eight of them, in fact. Eight by 25. That is going to be some... Oh gosh, my maths is absolutely dreadful. Uh, that will be 200, right? 10 by 25 is 250. Minus 25 times 2. Yeah, 200. Boom. So yeah, 200 thrones of fleet ready to go and then on top of that there are two rank fives so we had two plus three plus four plus five wanes of i'm mean, going to again assume weirwood into these and the ability to distribute them in any way you see fit that is absolutely monstrous <laughs> um let me do some quick napkin maths so we've got so eight uh times Two plus three. That's gonna take us there. So the forty plus three, or was it two or three? It was two rank fives. So forty plus two times open brackets two plus three plus four plus five equals that's not correct hmm. there we go 68 there we times that by f ah that's why it times it let's times it by let's be let's be a little less generous and say four thrones boom that's 188 thrones worth of value uh, that Abel is now able to distribute. Excuse the pun. But yeah, absolutely wild winds of uh, wind of war. I think my, cl my, my closing remark on this is that there's a couple themes that started off in Empire, um, like the, so the sort of, let's call it the Briar Hatred, that had some parallels with IRL racism. 
I mean, technically not really, but I think a lot of the players felt that way, and that's why PD made a change to them. So rather than everyone being, the idea was Friars were distrusted because of their link to the Spring Realm, because they might turn into, um, well, like any lineage will go mad, but also in the case of the Valorn, which is why Navarre had such a problem with them originally, is that when a Briar dies in the Valorn, they become a, um, a, a, a Dryad or a Matriarch, or a, um, a Plague Hulk, or something really nasty. And what can happen is the Green Mother, you know, Yorna Gra, kind of the patron eternal of the Valorn, would also speak to them directly and influence them, make them grow flowers out of themselves. So this wasn't based on, oh, I don't like bark. It was based on genuine fact that they were dangerous, at least in the eyes of the Navarre. But then uh, Winterbark, for example, not perhaps understanding the significance of the Valorn, actually had a lot of respect for Briars. But fundamentally, uh, differing nations had differing attitudes towards the Briars, um, but this was not opt-in, it was expected. And what they've done now, because some people were uncomfortable with um, you know, Briars being hated, uh, they've now made it an opt-in so that your character can choose to hate them for the above reasons, but it's not a national thing anymore, which basically has turned it into not a thing anymore. But if you do want to play it that way, it's um, it's up to you. And of course, anyone actually playing a Briar, this was always opt-in. No one's ever forced to play a Briar. That's part one. Uh, part two here is the same thing with slavery. Um, a much more direct correlation to IRL slavery. And I think, again, some of the players have gotten comfortable with this theme in the game. And that's why this opportunity arose. And, oh, look, the heroes have destroyed slavery. And it's... Uh, I imagine it's going to be gone from the system for quite a while, especially with those comments about Yarm and Asevia having to either change their ways or make some significant losses. I imagine they're going to change their ways. And this is pretty cool because on one hand, um, you know, we don't, I say we, I imagine PD don't want to upset anybody um, with you know some of the IRL themes in this game. I mean, the whole point is we come here to do PVP roleplay, political roleplay, uh, we don't come here to, you know, to re-engage with racism and slavery that, you know, exists in our real world. So I can understand that. What it also offers us is the chance to actually work with Yarm and Asevia a little more closely. This is kind of like, a, I, I think, a, a butterfly effect moment where actually we could move towards more positive political relationships with them and generate some more game, make the world a bigger place, because as we get more players... There's going to need to be more to, you know, to feed these players plot-wise, and I think this is PD moving in that way. Of course, this is entirely exposition and guesswork, so, um, well, well, we'll see what happens. But yeah, slavery looks like it's gone from the system, and we'll see what replaces it as the next crisis for the Empire. But until then, dear citizens, steer your ships well, avoid the shallow waters, and if you are one of those lucky people who managed to get their hold, well, their, their grubby hand on the hold of a load of loot, please share it with me. I am desperately in need of a good drink. <laughs>